and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, today we have returning to uh, the Remnant for the fifth time, though uh, his gold jacket is caught up in the supply chain crisis, so we don't know when um, we'll get that to him, is uh, one Ross Gregory Douthat. Um, I did not know until literally four seconds ago that his middle name was Gregory. Um, Ross is a columnist for the New York Times. He's a film critic for National Review. He was in a bygone era, um, one of the youngins at NR uh, when I was there. Um, I think even an intern for a while. Um, he has written a bunch of really important and good books. Um, uh, the latest one is the deep places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Um, and before that there was the decadent society, how we became the victims of our own success. And before that was a seething indictment of Pope Francis, whose title of which I can't quite remember. And, um, it's always great to have him back on. So let's just get started. We have a hard, uh, Hard, hard out on this one, so I'm going to try to be crisper than normal, and I don't mean the gene editing program. All right, so Ross, uh, first uh, question, you know, sort of a sort of uh, first of all, great to have you back. But um, uh, thank you, Jonah. Um, as a sort of a continuation of your last appearance here, where you were a uh, a bit prone to eorism, I think a little bit. Um, I was just wondering how you feeling. Um, you know, you wrote a whole book about how you, how, how Lyme disease and COVID panic knocked you on your, um, posterior. Uh, are you, are you, are you feeling better? Like just where, where are you at on this? A bunch of people wanted me to ask you that. Um, well, I actually just got my COVID booster shot. Um, so that, <laughs> so in the most literal sense of the term, I, I've been really under it for the last. 36 hours or so. Um, and I'm feeling better. Uh, but I do have sort of a really, you know, really swollen lymph node in one of my armpits. If I can be super gross, I know this is a family podcast. Um, so that's, that's sort of the immediate thing, but I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I I'm still sort of, you know, the, the place that I probably was in our last conversation with my underlying weird chronic stuff is basically where I still am. I'm about, you know, 90% on a given day. I still have some pain around my body. Um, and I still do some weird things to try and, to try and, you know, continue to slowly make that pain go away. Um, but yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Uh, I don't know if I've become less Eeyore-ish about, you know, the state of American society. Oh, since, nor, nor since do I think spoke, you should. Since we spoke last, but yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's, that well, is, we're, is what it is. R Rome wasn't burnt in a day. So, um, uh, so I originally got the idea to have you back on, although you're always, you have an open invitation to always come back on, uh, cause you had a good piece in the New York times, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, that's where you you have a moonlighting gig from your job as a film critic for NR. um, uh, why don't you just sort of lay out the thesis and we'll just take it from there? 
Well, so I get. Well, this was an un-Eeyore-ish piece. It was right. It was. So I guess it. I guess. I guess you are starting me out on a optimistic note. But the yeah, I mean, so we just had the anniversary of the sixth of January, um, and as you know, part of that, no doubt, time to that anniversary, the publishing industry. Uh, cleverly brought out a couple of books um, about the possibility of a looming American Civil War. Um, one of them more academic, one of them more journalistic, and they got a lot of a lot of coverage. They showed up in pieces in the New Yorker, in Vox. Uh, my colleague Michelle Goldberg wrote about one of them, um, and so my piece was about how uh, you know the, there probably isn't going to be an American Civil War. And to the extent that the language of civil war is being used in a plausible way, it's tending to sort of abuse the way most people understand the term civil war. So people are using the civil war to mean, uh, you know, there is some sporadic low level acts of uh, white nationalist violence or something, which there obviously were uh, at various points in the Trump era. Right. And, uh, you know, that, or, or I mean, with, with the sort of maximal comparisons being to something like Italy's years of lead, which was this period when there was a lot of terrorist activity in Europe, uh, in, in Italy, some assassinations of prominent politicians. And um, basically, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a certain kind of media, inf there's a mix of sort of media inflation of the likelihood that the United States is actually going to break apart, joined with this sort of academic tendency to say, well, the modern civil war is no longer a sort of North versus South um, armed conflict. It's something more sort of chaotic and tribal, like the Syrian civil war. And then you could imagine a version of this in the United States involving the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and Antifa or something. And I, I just feel like there's two huge leaps there. The first leap mm -hmm. is like, okay, well, if it's not an actual, <laughs> an actual civil war, then maybe we shouldn't call it a civil war. And then second, uh, you know, Antifa, I mean, I, 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 have no, I have no brief for Antifa, but they're not exactly starting the next Syrian civil war in the United States. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, I, it's, it's, I mean, if I got it right, I mean, the, the one leap is, well, one weird sort of leap and then and leap back is this claim that it's not a civil war. It's more like the Syrian civil war. Syrian civil war seemed like a pretty like war-y kind of war war, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, there, there are people being bombed with barrels of petrol and shooting at it. I mean, like that's that. If we yes, had that, we I would had, say that's a war. If we had that, that would be a civil war. Yes. Right. So, but it's, it's like, a, it's a way to sort of climb down to shatter people's understanding of what a civil war is and then say, we more like the Syrian civil war, but then again, it won't be like the Syrian civil war at all either. It'll instead be a bunch of jackass goons on two sides of a sort of cosplay conflict fighting with each other, which is not going to cost us you know, possession of North Dakota or something like that. Right. And I mean, underlying this is what I do think is sort of a, f a fundamental question about our era that I certainly could be wrong about, but it's, it's sort of a position that I've, I've held for a while. So I'm inclined to keep defending it, which is that there's a really huge appetite in modern America for 
you know, sort of playing at Civil War slash 1930s style political combat on the internet. And, but there's a really, really low appetite for actually putting your life on the line to, um, or not even just your life of, you know, risking arrest and incarceration for the sake of a, you know, either anti-left or anti-right politics, right? So you, you know, you have this sort of, you know, on the left, you have in the Trump era, this, you know, this constant rhetoric about looming and imminent American fascism, but you never got, you know, until the very strange pandemic era summer of, of 2020, anything that looked like sort of, you know, organized insurrection against mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Um, and then on the right, you know, you you had January 6th and it was real, but most of the people involved in January 6th did not believe themselves to be, um, you know, sort of actually instigating a, a civil war. There was, you know, a sort of, as far as I can tell, a sort of vanguard at that protest as a small group of people who were really there to you know beat up cops and go after politicians and then there were a lot of people who were sort of you know which always happens with mobs right who get sort Mm -hmm. of carried along carried along and end up sort of wandering wandering inside the capital snapping selfies right but but in in each of these cases whether it's antifa in portland or you know the the sort of you know the the militant vanguard the number of people involved is like, like it seems like there are like a thousand people in all of the U.S. who really want to fight <laughs> civil mm-hmm. war, and they and, and they show up at the same places, right? It's like, yeah, some of the people on Jan- there on January sixth were probably also there in Charlottesville, right? In the you know the white nationalist march there, and the Antifa you know the the Antifa people who really want to set fires around federal buildings, sort of congregate in situations where it seems like there's an opportunity to do that. Um, But you need to actually have a civil war in the United States. You would need more than 500 to 1,000 people who wanted to, who actually wanted to fight. And even those people, you know, once the feds cracked down on them, I mean, after January 6th, there was this wave of commentary that was like, oh my God, you know, the Republican Party is going to have a Hezbollah wing. There's going to be sort of anti-Biden terrorism by, you know, Republicans who think he's an illegitimate president. And I just don't think there are a lot of people on the right, as crazy as the right has sometimes gotten, who actually want to do that. I don't, I don't think the desire for that kind of violence is there. Um, and you know, I'll probably be proven wrong, but that's, that's been, that's, that's my take on the, on the, the civil war question. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, let me put it this way. Um, I'm basically with you and it's a, it's a lonely remnanty place to simultaneously take the position that you people, not you, but like the people out there are losing your goddamn minds in various moral panics and at the same time take the position that things aren't actually really very good. You know, it's it's a hard argument to make. It's like things aren't as bad as 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 the crazies are making it seem. Um but at the same time the fact that there's so much indulgence of the crazies I think is a very bad thing. So I think I think you're probably wrong on the numbers by tenfold. 
I think it's probably 10,000 people in America want to fight, but that's still, uh, you help me with the math. You know, we told, they told me there'd be no math. That's still 0.003% or whatever, you know, it's a, it's still a handful of people and they're hard and they're, they're wildly dispersed across a continental nation and they're mostly idiots and goons. And, um, so it doesn't really matter what the actual number is. And, you know, you don't get a civil war unless, you know, those numbers are wrong by a factor of a thousand or something like that. That said, I do think there's nothing good to come of the jackassery on both the left and the right that does this performative stuff, indulging and encouraging these things. You know, the Kurt Schlichter types who keep sort of wink, wink, saying they want race war and they want to, you know, kill people. Um, although they, you know, they're there's always sort of try to be clever and lawyerly about how they're saying it. Um, none of that is good for America. None of that is good for our politics. But um, I do wonder, like, so, you know, you wrote this book about decadence and part of your argument was about the culture was that we're sort of living up off of stored capital and we're really burning it down in terms of we're running, we're, 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 we're emptying the tank of the stuff that's worth recycling, you know, profitably for the culture. Could you, could you argue that the obsession with, you know, we're talking about, we're talking Thursday um, two days after Biden's speech, this obsession with claiming that we live in Jim Crow's America or that Jim Crow is back is another form of, of a kind of decadence, which says that we don't have any great existential, moral, black and white struggles today. So we have to in, either invent them or borrow the language of previous ones and apply it inappropriately and inaccurately to the, to the much less uh, black and white, as it were, struggles that we have today. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought I thought your column on Biden's speech was really good, and I thought Biden's speech was really terrible. Uh, and it, but it was really terrible for roughly that reason, right? That it, you know, it takes a the United States. We we have a dispute about um, about voting rights and the laws around voting, in which. Both sides, I think, are living in the reality of the more dangerous, the realities of the more dangerous and exciting past. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, it really was the case that, you know, the United States had laws that <laughs> that severely restricted or eliminated black people's right to vote. It also was the case that the United States had large scale voter fraud as a normal fact of life in many American cities. Right. They, these are these are just accurate descriptions of the world of, you know, 100, 100 years ago down to the world of, you know, at the 1960 election. Right. It was it was totally plausible for Richard Nixon to think that voter fraud had helped tip the scales to to John F. Kennedy. How you know how true that actually was has been endlessly litigated, but it was a totally reasonable, a totally mm -hmm. reasonable um, supposition. But in the year 2022 you know there are republicans who want to pass um you know sort of restrictions on early voting that you know where they have malign partisan motives right like that's mm -hmm. that's true but the malign partisan motive is we think that this restrictive voter law or you know th that will have a point zero 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 
0.01% impact on turnout in some Democratic groups, which in the closest election imaginable might might make a difference, right? And, you know, there are Democrat, you know, there are there are Democrats who, you know, want to do sort of ballot harvesting initiatives, right? That, you know, are, yeah, are sort of on, you know, in in the closest of close elections, you could imagine someone being, you know, sort of casting casting a vote that they otherwise wouldn't have cast where the way ballot harvesting works you aren't actually getting you know a, a sort of the, the the most perfectly legitimate expression of someone's political will right but but both of those things are happening so much on the margins of what actually determines elections and when you dig into the data there's just the laws that republicans want to want to pass don't have any real effect on turnout. And they also don't have any real <laughs> effect on fraud because fraud, while real, is just not a huge election turning thing in most cases. And so both sides are in this, they're, they're doing this kind of constant theater. And I mean, the problem with the theater, and this, this is, this is, the, yeah, th- this is sort of the big question that I, I think, you know, you're, you're pushing at a bit in your sort of pushback to my civil war thing, right? Which is that, you know, there there does have to be some danger in being theatrical all the time, right? Like we and we have seen this with Trump, right? January sixth was a case study in the dangers of of the sort of you know voter fraud mythology taken to taken to an extreme. So there does have to be a danger in Democrats convincing or trying to convince their base that you know voter laws passed in Republican states recreate Jim Crow or our Jim Crow on steroids, right? right. Wasn't that, that, that was the phrase, uh, yeah. Jim Crow on steroids. So there, there does have to be real, there is some real cost to sort of pretending we're living in the higher stakes struggles of the past. Um, but, but the baseline reality is, a yeah, a, a sort of a decadent, a decadent pretense that the stakes in these controversies are higher than they actually are. Yeah. I, 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 let me, let me try and get at it this way. I, um, first of all, as I often say, one of my big problems with, um, the way we talk about Nazism in American life, which first of all, there's not a lot of it, but you know, that's not the issue. It's like people maximums become minimums where like, if, as I'm sure you recall, because you wrote columns to this effect, saying that Trump wasn't Hitler, right? You know, my standard line was Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. But people take you saying he's not Hitler as defending the guy, as if, like, all of a sudden now Hitler is the minimal, like, level of criticism rather than the maximal, right? I mean, like, I always thought maybe it's just because of my education at road of Sholem day school in New York city that one could fall a good deal shy of being Hitler and still be bad. Right. And similarly like restrictions on voting may be good or bad. Let's say they're bad. Some of them I think absolutely are bad. Some of them I think are absolutely fine. You know, you really have to look at the details, but you have to go a really long way to say that they're Jim Crow. Right. And yet the inability for our politicians to speak with nuance and granularity 
and make the case for Burkean small incremental reforms and improvements and instead having to cast everything in these Manichaean, uh, you know, uh, you know, what did Biden say? Um, you know, this is, this is an inflection point in human history where time stops because you have to do the essential and all this kind of garbage, um, over repealing like the number of drop boxes in a, you know, you know, ballot drop boxes that really, this is, this is Edmund Pettus bridge. And, um, and I think that that kind of the demands for that kind of rhetoric, which I think are base driven on both sides, make it impossible to do the simple things that would improve people's lives through public policy. But they also put us on a path down to a place where you know, the Civil War thing still may not be law likely, but the possibility of activating lone gunmen becomes more likely. You know, the softball shooter, the possibility of, um, of the continuation, the likelihood of the continuation of zero-sum politics for the rest of our professional lives is real. And that should be bad enough and, and warn criticism. I mean, I guess that's, that was my point. Just be clear yes no i think i i think that's right i mean look i you know i had the you you we have somewhat different audiences but i think we both did versions of this in the trump era during during his presidency where you would write pieces that both contained the statement <laughs> that trump is not you know who he is being described as by you know the most hysterical parts of the liberal and mainstream media and also that Trump probably shouldn't be president of the United States, right? Like, right. and, and, and maintaining, maintaining that, I mean, that trying to maintain that balance applies to a lot of different issues. And you, you have this thing in where, you know, increasingly it's sort of the job of the pundit to sort of try and clean up his or her own side's excesses to some mm -hmm. extent, right? Where, and sometimes this is, good right it's like a case of sort of the 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 right the the journalist the policy writer tries to sort of bring you back down to earth right mm -hmm. um and say okay well joe biden <laughs> joe biden said it's worse than jim crow this is uh, you know i'll be a liberal writer and it's not worse than jim crow uh but you know it it does flow from sort of you know impulses that that are bad for this reason or this reason or that reason right and um but for the but for the yeah the casual consumer of politics they're much more likely to just get the just get the joe biden version and then also cable news i think generally exists to amplify the outrageous version and not the sort of not mm -hmm. the nuanced version to put it mildly. So if you're watching MSNBC, you are getting the idea that, um, you know, the voting rights bill that will not pass the Senate really is all that stands between the United States and, you know, some sort of post democratic nightmare scenario. Um, and you aren't, you know, you aren't getting the sort of smarter New York times op-ed, not that they're always smart. <laughs> I was, know, I, I'm glad don't, you don't don't you know don't don't be don't be too harsh there, Jonah. But um, but yeah, you aren't getting the smarter version, or you know you. And then also, like 
I think you've seen a lot of this with the voter fraud stuff, right? Where Trump behaved completely outrageously in the wake of the presidential election and circulated any garbage conspiracy theory, the most insane stuff you could imagine. You know, he has Mike Lindell in there. He has Sidney Powell in there, right? It all, you know, it ends with January 6th. And then in the aftermath, you get conservatives saying, well, you know, Trump, Trump was, well, they may not even say Trump was wrong. They'll just say, well, there are valid concerns about like how Mark Zuckerberg's, um, the money that Mark Zuckerberg spent on get out the vote efforts. How was that distributed? What were the partisan effects of that? Right. And there are valid questions about sure. how Mark Zuckerberg's get out the vote money was distributed. Um, but that wasn't what we were watching. Donald Trump was not giving a press conference being like, well, you know, <laughs> I've got some valid questions about Mark Zuckerberg's right. get out the vote spending. It, you know, it was like, no, there's a vast, a vast conspiracy to steal the election. And I've brought in Sidney Powell to, to tell me all about it. Right. Um, and I mean, there, I think, you know, you do have like, there is a there is a pundit's obligation or a writer's obligation to sort of figure out how to you know i mean it's a hard challenge right you you mm -hmm. have to like you have to describe reality accurately if you think there are concerns about election integrity you have you should write about those um but if you're doing it against the backdrop of a president who refused to concede an election and you know helped whip up a mob that stormed the Capitol, you you have to you have to acknowledge that that happened too. Yeah, so I mean, it's funny. I, I've been meaning to write about this. I, I, I increasingly, you know, and we maybe you should talk about it. But you know, like the old, I was talking to Ryan Bourne about how the old divisions of class as an economic thing really don't have the purchase that they once did you know david your colleague david brooks wrote that piece about um you know the trump boat parade where you had these millionaires in boats and the the people protesting were like had masters and you know fine arts degrees um making a tenth of what the guys owning the boats were and yet the way they talked had all these signifiers that they were considered themselves of a higher status class you know higher it, than than the people in the boats and and I think that there are a lot of other of those kinds of distinctions that are more meaningful today. But at a more meta level, I'm increasingly define dividing people in our line of work between those who want to sharpen distinctions, um, and those who want to blur distinctions. And um, there's a rate. One of the things that social media does is it encourages people to reach for the most outlandish comparison rather than the tightest comparison. And so you have, you know, the Jack Watt in Ohio yesterday or the day before, you know, saying that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that vaccine mandates or vaccine proof of vaccination cards, you know, were a re was, was Nazi Germany coming back. That is a very weak comparison, right? But making these distinctions where you and I both did, where we say, I can simultaneously argue that Trump is bad, but he is not the demon figure that that the left is making him out to be. Um, that pleases nobody, right? Because and there are just very few writers out there who actually want to make distinctions that ruin narratives <laughs> rather than aid narratives. And I think that's a big 
it's 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 one of the things I look for, regardless of ideology now, that I have more respect for than um, you know, one's commitment to a side or or a team, if that makes any sense. It does, although you do end up with like new teams, right? Um, which you have to be mindful of too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is sort of there there is I, I, I do think of myself you know, in the sort of analysis of um, the Trump phenomenon, right? There's sort of this bipartisan team that is, you know, a mix of conservatives who weren't for Trump, but decided that he wasn't Hitler. And then people mostly not on the center left, but on the left, who were sort of opposed to the kind of you know MSNBC Russia hysteria stuff, right? And who so, so, so who have very different political commitments than I do fundamentally. Mm-hmm. But so like I I'm friends with Sam Moyne, who I uh, taught taught a class with him at Yale, um, and he he's a you know very a very left guy, like a Ber- a Bernie Sanders voting left guy. Um, but he's sort of you know seen in the light of Trump era debates as, you know, sort of a, um, a, he's a, he's a skeptic, like, you know, he, he's a skeptic of civil war narratives, right? Mm -hmm. He's a skeptic of looming fascism narratives. And, and he has the same, someone like Jason Stanley, who is, I'm just doing like New Haven, (laughs) New Haven, Yale stuff, right? But Jason Stanley wrote the book, How Fascism Works. Um, and, uh, he has the same, you know, probably basically the same political commitments as Samuel Moyne, but they ended up in totally different places Mm -hmm. in their analysis of Trump. And so, and so I do, I think of myself as like, I'm on a team with Sam Moyne, right? We're on team, you know, there's not going to be a civil war. We're on team, there's not going to be a fascist dictatorship. And you do, you know, then you end up like having some sort of team dynamics there too, where, you know, you can sort of end up, you know, underestimating under, maybe you end up underestimating the dangers of Trump because you're sort of committed to this idea that he's not Hitler, right? Like, so you, you, it's hard to, all I'm saying is it's hard to escape team, team formation. The the coalition instinct thing is very, very strong, but there are things you can form coalitions around again, to make distinctions. Uh, there are things you can make, you can form coalitions around that are better than other things to form coalitions around forming a coalition around white, hot rage. Uh, not great. Forming a coalition around the idea that, uh, we should drink our own urine to cure COVID. Not great, Bob. You know, I mean, I can go down a very long list. Um, forming a coalition with people who deliberately lie about all sorts of things in order to monetize clicks and, and ratings and whatnot um, is not as valuable as forming or as honorable as forming a coalition around people who like are obsessively, you know, care about facts and actually having arguments and persuading people and um so again my point is is that drawing some distinction not all teams are alike and not all analogies are alike even if you can make an analogy doesn't mean you necessarily should and i think one of the things that is driving people crazy is this addiction to narrative stuff and it and that addiction to narrative and meta narratives and all that nonsense depends on really bad analogies right that's what gives them power you know, and if you think 
your vaccination card or your mask is like a the yellow star in 1930s Berlin, you are operating on a bad narrative fueled in part by a bad, bad analogy. Anyway, you can respond to that, but I want to, I sort of want to move on. It's in my head. I've, I, so uh, I'm probably going to write about this soon. My apologies to the listeners. They hate it when I preview columns I'm going to write. But um, last point about the democracy stuff. I, for years, I assume you would be in roughly the same place as I am, but maybe not. Um, I, for years, heaped great scorn and ridicule on the idea of compulsory voting. Just there's something in the libertarian in me that says, who the hell is the government to make to force me to vote? I'm a big believer. I have been a big believer in the argument that not voting is a form of voting. It's a, it's a, it's a source. It's a sign that you are sufficiently content with how life is going that, or sufficiently skeptical of the power of government to do anything that you don't think it's worth your time. And I think that's fine. Um, but given what we were both agreeing on earlier and sort of the, what you all written about as well, um, that the left is obsessed with this false mythology about voter suppression and the right is obsessed with this false mythology about, about election fraud. If you actually required every American to vote, I'm not endorsing it. I just thought experiment for the moment, right? Cause I, I, it's very hard for me to jettison my opposition to it since I've written about it so much. But first of all, um, all of the arguments for the voter suppression stuff just go away, right? Because now everyone's going to vote, so there's no concern there whatsoever, right? And moreover, both Republicans and Democrats share one piece of, of misinformation, which is that the assumption there is that higher turnout leads to Democratic victories. And there is like 50 years of social science at this point, political science, that says that is just flatly untrue. It's just not true. It wasn't true with Glenn Youngkin. Voter tur high voter turnout helped him. There is this vestigial sort of Marxist thing that thinks if, if the lumpen proletariat and the proletariat achieve class consciousness and head to the polls, that they will, uh, they will secure victories for the working class forever. And it turns out that just factually wrong is that high voter turnout, that this country is actually pretty much split the way the polls and the voting suggests it is. And so all of a sudden, if you did this, the need to excite and pander to and 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 fearmonger to voters to get them to turn out kind of goes away and because all the voters now have equal value in your algorithm and so now you're going to look for the majority of voters rather than play base turnout election games does that make sense to you what what is your objection to it and again apologies to people if you see this in the column shortly but i mean my my basic objection to it is the one that you've had all along, which is this is a free country, man. This is America. Yeah. You can't, you can't make me, can't make me go vote for one of these guys, you know, and I know you could, I, I assume in this hypothetical, you know, you could write in, you know, Kubla Khan or Kanye right. West or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I have a sort of, I have a, both of you that I, I agree with your traditional view that not voting is itself a political act. Um, and I do have enough, even though I am an occasional critic of libertarianism, I have enough sort of cussed Americanness to 
find the idea of the government like how you know what is this this is going to be enforced what i'm going to get a hundred dollar fine if i if i don't oh death death cast my but right or death right (laughs) so that's that's sort of the that's i i have the objection to it that you've had all along yeah um i think there are you know practical objections to that the nature of you know the, the united states is just not run like a lot of other developed countries we are big and sprawling and decentralized all of these kind of things that conservatives tend to like elections are administered by the states the, you know this is part of the conservative objection i think part of the reasonable conservative objection to the the voting the voting bills that the biden administration supports right is that it sort of it federalizes election law you would have to functionally federalize election law in order to to pull this off um some of the traditional left-wing objections to this would still obtain, right? That sort of, you know, what about all the people who are, you know, disconnected from society in various ways, who don't even get counted in the census and so on? Like, you're still not getting those people. Um, you're, you know, you're never going to actually achieve 100% voting and the yeah. people who aren't voting are even more marginalized than in in this in this scenario. Um, I find that so preemptively the, exhausting. The disenfranchised homeless argument. The is. disenfranchised. Well, what about the Appalachian <laughs> Distillery? You know, the the people making the people making hooch in in Eastern Kentucky. You're going to send the law after them for not for not voting. I mean, why can't Ted Kaczynski's of the world vote? Talk about the Idaho Panhandle. This is how the Second Civil War starts, Jonah. Compulsory voting in the Idaho Panhandle, man. Um, so. So yeah, so those those are points. I, I guess I think that I, I'm I don't think I'm skeptical of sort of policy fixes that of to problems that fundamentally reflect sort of partisan mythologies rather than real underlying problems. I I mean my my basic belief is that the way you get out from under a bunch of these stories about American politics is that you figure out how to win, you know, political landslides again. Right. Um, that that I think a fundamental problem we have in our society is that the American political system, not necessarily by original design, but in terms of how it evolved, it evolved to be responsive to big swings from election to election and big, especially presidential landslides where you know, one, there was no question about voter fraud because, you know, Richard Nixon or FDR or whomever is running up, you know, 58% of the vote. Right. And two, when it came to govern then, you know, when it came time to actually pass legislation, much of it legislation that you, Jonah Goldberg, might have opposed, but nonetheless, when it came time to pass legislation, you had sort of a clear sense that, okay, you have a party that has a functional majority, even, you know, in, even if in the Reagan era, you still have a lot of conservative Democrats around, so technically the Democrats still control the House or something. Everyone understands that those congressmen's, congresspeople's voters also voted for Ronald Reagan like Ronald Reagan, and therefore you have to work with Ronald Reagan and, and actually govern, right? And, and the system just does not, it just does not respond well to, you know, these sort of endless 50% to 49% elections. And that is also the thing that creates problems in the electoral college, right? right. Where the electoral college 
encourages landslides. That's one of the potential advantages of the Electoral College, right, is that, you know, it's it's built, it sort of magnifies the scale of your victory. Um, but if nobody's getting to even like 52 or 53 percent, then you the problem of the Electoral College delivering the, delivering the presidency to someone who doesn't win a majority of the popular vote stops being this occasional thing and starts being a constant, a constant possibility. So I, I, I think, you know, not, I, I, I'm, I think this, you would get out from under at least some problems right now if you had a political coalition or a set of politicians who were capable of just you know, just having like a 55% majority over a few election cycles, just just that would be more helpful than any sort of technocratic fix. And, you know, you're taking my right to sleep in on election day from my cold, dead hands, Jonah Goldberg. Um, well, maybe we just take one of your hands and make it cold and dead as the punishment for not voting. You know, this is um, You're getting way too into these <laughs> potential, these, you know, um, yeah. All right, so uh, last political question, and then I got to talk to you about don't look up. Um, uh, um, so it's become sort of a cottage industry around here. By around here, I mean among all the empty booze bottles as I'm alone in my house um, to talk about uh, the um, inability of Bill Clinton, not Bill Clinton, of, of Joe Biden to be Bill Clinton, to have a sister soldier moment to pick a fight with his own side and say, uh, you guys are crazy. You're not representing the average Democrat, never mind the average American. Um, and it seems like the longest we ever go is about 72 hours before there's another opportunity for Biden to have a sister soldier moment that he then passes on. And I, I think like the latest one, it would be very easy in the abstract, I understand that there are problems for him to fire his education secretary. If these allegations that are, are true, that he actually solicited the letter that compared parents to domestic terrorists in the critical race theory protest school board meeting crap. And he can just say, Hey, look, that's not how we do things in my administration. You know, I was elected to unite the country, but you I mean, literally you could pick one almost every single day. Um, he could have come out and said something about the teachers unions in Chicago. I mean, you just go yep. down a long list. What is your operating theory? I have many theories. What is your operating theory about why the Democratic Party? I think we know why the Republican Party is incapable of sufficiently criticizing Marjorie Taylor Greene and that kind of crowd. Um, but what is your theory about why Joe Biden is incapable of picking even a modest fight with his left base that would help him signal to the country that he's actually the centrist that, that they thought he was, which got him elected. So this is a case where I, I feel like there is some media failure here in that we have less good reporting than we should have. Um, and maybe we were spoiled by the leak fest <laughs> of the Trump White House, but yeah. on the internal dynamics of the Biden White House, like, all right, everybody's like, oh, you know, Ron Klain's in charge and so on, right? I mean, there's sort of these, and, you know, everybody everybody hates the vice president. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's sort of these 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 narratives, but I, I think this is a question that is, yeah, it's it's partially has to be a question about sort of, 
internal power dynamics within an administration where, let's be frank, the president is probably not, you know, as focused as he might be on every single controversy every day. And I, I, I would like to see more reporting on internal dynamics. So that's sort of, that's sort of a preface. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I basically think though, that the answer is it's sort of the reverse of the Republican situation in the Republican party. You have a world where the Republican, the sort of the people who run Republican campaigns and, you know, sort of staff Republican offices and sort of occupy positions of potency in in sort of the infrastructure of the party don't like the Marjorie Taylor Greens, but are scared to criticize them because of backlash from their voters or from sort of, you know, the infrastructure of populist media, mm-hmm. right? So given their druthers, the average, I think, I think this is, you know, the average person working for Kevin McCarthy would like nothing more than to stand up and, you know, just sort of, and, and go after Green or Matt Getz, Gates or anybody else, right? Um, and in the, with the Democrats, it's the reverse. Most of the people, there are lots and lots of Democratic voters who would be perfectly happy if the party you know, if the sort of elites of the party criticized the party's ideological extremists, but the people staffing the Democrats, administ- Democratic administration don't want to do that because they are on their, are on the, ex- the side of the extremists, mm-hmm. right? Like that the, with, you know, the way to distill this is that Joe Biden, it's the Joe Biden presidency, but you know, most of the people working for him probably really liked Elizabeth Warren at some yeah, level, yeah. even now, again, th- this is, I I'm being more speculative than sort of granular about the actual people involved in the Biden white house. But I, I think, you know, Biden, I think Biden by his nature presumably would like to do more of this. And you see it sort of what was that thing? God, there was a version of this actually that just happened, right? I, I'm my mind is a, a sieve, but it was just a few weeks ago. Biden said something like, uh, you know, he said, "Oh, something was dumb," and then he had to. He, he the, the administration sort of rapidly, rapidly clarified. What, what oh was, yeah, what, what was this? I cannot remember, but I mean, there have been a couple backtracks like that where. Um, well, or even even in the case, maybe this is not the example I was thinking of, but the um, or maybe it is, but the um, the verdict in the Rittenhouse shooting, right, mm-hmm. where Biden off the cuff is more just sort of normal, you know, sort of normal and says, well, this, you know, the 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 jury has spoken and we should respect it. And then Biden in the statement has to get in the sort of ideological critique, right? Like that. Right. I, I think that was. That that happened. I think that happened with 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 the Rittenhouse case, right? Where Biden's sort of instant political instinct is to just sort of defer to the jury, and then his White House's instinct is to add in this sort of layer of left wing ideological stuff, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's. I I have to think that that's the basic dynamic. Um, that you know, there's there's just this. There, Biden became president without having enough people in the part in the elite level of the party who were really committed to what he was promising this sort of you know 
old school democratic moderation. And he is, you know, too old to just impose this on his own White House. And so it just doesn't happen naturally, or it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen the way, the way that it should. That's yeah. my theory. I, I, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm a soft to medium subscriber to David Shoreism. Um, and his analysis, a lot of, and I, I've, I've, let's put it this way. That's gotta be part of it. Right. I mean, it just, I mean, there may be other factors. I don't know what they are necessarily. I mean, I can make guesses, but th- that basic, you know, I mean the same basic thing that takes place at a lot of journalistic institutions, some that rhyme with schmoosh more schmimes that, uh, the older stat, older management is terrified of the young people and um gives them too much deference i think that's going on in the democratic party and i I think that's right i just it's just i mean i was talking to you all about this last week but it it is just very weird that our basic is like our basic assumptions about how politicians act on their self-interest seems to be increasingly missing from our politics and we've all's response which i think is right is that politicians still respond to incentives. It's just that we've got the wrong incentive structure now. And, um, um, and he's right. But I think the, you, the white house should have more immunity to those bad incentives. Like it's totally understandable why a house member who's dealing, who has a, you know, an R plus nine district and is afraid of a primary challenger is not going to want to get in a fight with you know with marjorie taylor green even though obviously republican congress people are but that's more understandable if you're joe biden (laughs) your presidency depends on it depends on the people who you know voted for you and not for hillary clinton right just it just depends on that and you know you're not there isn't a if joe biden in the unimaginable to me scenario where he runs for president again, he's not re- like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is not going to run a successful primary challenge and defeat Joe Biden. We already watched the Democrats run a series of primary campaigns that were to the left of Joe Biden and he beat them all. Right. 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 So his incentives his political incentives do cut in the right direction. The, pre- the presidency is the one office that should be still more immune, especially once you have won the office, to then more immune to these structural forces driving polarization and base politics. And and yet it's not. It's and yet it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. So it's 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 a it's a conundrum. Let's, uh, in the precious little time we have left, because I promised you a hard out, um, um, which is not a grotesque euphemism in any way. Um, what, uh, uh, I saw that you had something to say on Twitter. I didn't see if you wrote anything about it. I, I did a column about Don't Look Up. I thought Don't Look Up had its moments and it had some good performances, but ultimately at the thing that it was trying to do, it was to borrow a term from social science, hot garbage. Um, what, um, um, what was your overall take to don't look up? Yeah, I, I think, I think the movie failed. I think that, you know, there's sort of three level ways of looking at don't look up. You could say as its makers did, 
over and over again that this is an allegory about climate change. Right. In which case, it's just a terrible, a terrible allegory. Yeah. <laughs> and it just fails. And it fails for reasons that, you know, that very liberal journalists have pointed out. The piece to read on this is Eric Levitz for New York Magazine wrote this sort of painstaking piece about how a long-term, slow-moving, hotly debated, you know, ecological challenge that affects, you know, affects people on various time horizons in various ways is just nothing like a comet that's going to hit the earth in six months that has a simple, you know, throw the nukes at it solution, right? So at that, that, just to be clear about this, a comet barreling towards earth is great TV. Climate change is not. (laughs) Yes. So that's right. So then, so then, yeah. So then you sort of, then the, the, the next level where the movie almost succeeds is as a just a sort of broader critique of to talk my own book of decadence right Mm -hmm. of the idea that like america doesn't have functional institutions it has a sort of frivolous and empty culture and if we were faced with this existential threat we would fail because we're decadent Mm -hmm. right that's that's the sort of and and that i think the covid era covid is a better analogy for the comet because it's faster moving, it kills people quickly. And you can see, you know, if you go through the COVID era, you can see all kinds of failures that do, I think, reflect our, our, our decadence, our structural problems, and so on. So that's, that's the level at which you, the movie gets better. And it's the level at which, you know, the people who've praised it, sort of who are more on the right, like Tyler Cowen wrote, wrote a thing, sort of praising, praising the movie. I think that's how they're reading it. Um, but then ultimately it still fails there because it can't get away from the idea that, well, it, it, first it can't get away from the desire to still say, just trust the science. That's all you got to do is trust the science. Right. Um, and then just the idea that the, the fundamental villains are just the right-wing populist president and the, you know, the greedy plutocrat. Like the, the, the movie just... It doesn't, it satirizes the media, but it never really satirizes like academia, the scientific establishment, the, the, bureau, bureau, the bureaucracy. It sort of takes one swing at my own employer, the New York Times, and then sort of forgets that the New York Times exists. It, it wants to be this sort of broad-based satire, but it's still sort of pinned to these, you know, liberalism circuit really circa 2006, this sort of Bush era, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just get the experts in charge and everything will be fine kind of mentality. And that's why, you know, to just spoil it a tiny bit, the, you know, if you, if you watch the movie, there's really just one bad decision that's made in the course of the movie, right? right? Like the Meryl Streep's right-wing president decides not to nuke the comet and to do something else. And that's that's the decision. That's the decision that destroys the earth. All of the media, social media, systemic failure stuff is sort of ancillary. It's atmospherics, but basically, Earth is destroyed because we elected a female Donald Trump. That's it. That's the message. Right. And as you put it on a, Twitter, that's a boring. That's a boring message. Yeah, as you put it on Twitter, which I think is, is exactly right, is the whole movie comes apart if the president picks policy A instead of policy B, which again, it's nothing like climate change, you know, um, right. it's just not a system. Then it's, you're just not doing a systemic. 
critique anymore. But I did this. I don't know if you saw it, but I did this whole column about it where I. Oh, I didn't see I it. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You know, you should. Well, then you should. It's it's maybe it's stupid, but I had fun. I rewrote the movie um, for just just to try and make it, I think, closer to a systemic critique. So I kept all the dumb things that the right wing populist does. Um but then, you know, I said, well, you, you, what you, you also need to have the head of NASA insist that, you know, you can't blow up the comet because it will rain down too many fragments and kill too many people. And you need to do a more limited strike, which happens to be the subject of his dissertation. And so everyone in the media except Fox News says, well, this guy is just, he represents science and you have to listen to him. So they do the more <laughs> limited strike and it fails. And it turns out his dissertation was based on fraudulent experiments that never replicated outside his own lab. Well, like, I'll take a look. That, 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 that I, I think you just, I, I think the movie, if you'd had like three separate failed attempts to take down the comet, each one reflecting the pathologies of a different part of American society, I think it would have been much more effective at the best thing it was trying to do. Yeah, you could also, I mean, not to start a whole other rabbit hole, but like you go back to Obama's NASA director where he said that the number one priority for NASA was going to be diversity, um, which is like not, like diversity is important. We don't have to get into that. But like that's not the number one priority for our space no. exploration program, right? <laughs> no, so this was, no, I so I, so in the next stage of my <laughs> rewritten script, I said, well, then the president orders the full blow it up nuclear strike, but it fails as well because most of the nukes don't work. The military having failed to inspect its arsenal because that part of the budget was spent hiring TikTok influencers to do a new recruitment right. pitch for Gen right. Z. Then I, so I'll definitely I'm, check I'm it there, out. I'm there with you, Jonah. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and uh, we are at we are at one minute to the the, the dropout point. Um, I have no idea how to end this on a 30 second question. Um, but, um, uh, how, um, how to put this, um, if you had, I think we can both argue that, that, that politics has been on a bad trend line for a while. Um, are you on the side of continuity or, or, or do you think that it's going to start ticking in a positive direction again? Um, um, I leave it to you. Um, no, I mean, basically, Donald Trump is going to run for president again, right? And he's going to be the Republican nominee against a Democratic president. It's either going to be this too old for it Biden or, you know, whatever could emerge from a contested Democratic primary. Um, that doesn't, I, I don't see how that makes politics better. So I think I would expect continuity in polarization and a certain kind of brokenness. Um, I thought, you know, I mean, look, if COVID goes away, which after Omicron, it really might. And you have this sort of the 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 large scale return to normalcy that was hoped for <laughs> a year ago, then maybe some fundamental dynamic shift. But I, I feel like there was a big opportunity for 
Biden to become that 55% president in a world with a Biden boom and a post-COVID recovery and all these things. And that obviously isn't happening. And there's a clear opportunity that you could see in the Glenn Youngkin mm-hmm. race for a Republican party that, you know, just seems kind of normal to step in and sort of exploit the Biden failure and the captivity of the Democrats to the left and create a, you know, a real Republican majority, which we haven't had in this country for a long time. That opportunity is totally still there. Um, And that, you know, from a conservative perspective, I guess that should give some reason for optimism. But I just don't see how I don't see how that comes into being in 2024 in a party fundamentally dominated by by Trump. So anyway, yeah. And that's why I want to talk to you about our sponsor today, Gold. All right. Anyway, <laughs> Ross, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I told you I'd get you out. It's two minutes past the marker. Uh, but uh, uh, thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. Thanks for having me. All right. So Ross had to go. He had some sort of, you know, big fancy pants New York Times pundit thing to go do where everybody, you know, wears belts. Um, But it was good to have him on. There was a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to that we didn't get to. Again, I apologize. I had not seen that he'd done a whole big thing on Don't Look Up. I just saw some tweets from him. Um, But it was uh, it was good to have him on. I'm still going to play with the mandatory voting thing, even though I'm very sympathetic to my own position on it, as it were. and uh, tomorrow, or whenever you listen to the next podcast of On the Remnant, we're going to do a uh, um, another drive time because a guy is uh, in the house, as it were. And uh, we may even do it in person, which would be super weird and awkward. Um, and uh, so check it out. We had quite a spirited discussion on the Dispatch Pod Uh uh, earlier this week, um, some complaints were that, that it shed too much heat, and not enough light, as it were. Um, I'm not sure I agree, but just so you know, it was it was um, none of us liked Joe Biden's democracy speech at all, um, and thought it was really irresponsible, as you might have been able to tell from what I said today or what I wrote in the Wednesday G file. Which, if you're not a subscriber, um, you'll have a hard time reading. But if you do become a subscriber, or a member of the dispatch community, you can read right away. And that would be good for me, good for the dispatch, good for um, all the good things. And um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>